0: Please turn in your copy of God's Word to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. Our sermon text this morning is really just verse 24, but for the sake of context, I'll read from verse 1. chapter 3, from verse 1. Take heed once more to the reading of God's word. O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that ye should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you? This only would I learn of you. Received ye the Spirit by the works of the law, or by the hearing of faith? Are ye so foolish... Having begun in the Spirit, are ye now made perfect by the flesh? Have ye suffered so many things in vain, if it be yet in vain? He therefore that ministereth to you the Spirit, and worketh miracles among you, doeth he it by the works of the law, or by the hearing of faith? Even as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Know ye therefore that they which are of faith the same are the children of Abraham, and the Scripture. For seeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. So then they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is every one that continueth not all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God, it is evident, for the just shall live by faith. And the law is not of faith, but the man that doeth them shall live in them. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Brethren, I speak after the manner of men, though it be but a man's covenant yet if it be confirmed no man disannuleth or added thereto now to abraham and his seed were the promises made he saith not and to seeds as of many but as of one and to thy seed which is christ and this i say that the covenant which that was confirmed before of god in christ the law which was 430 years after cannot disannul that it should take that it should make the promise of none effect. For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Wherefore then serveth the law. It was added because of transgressions, to the seed should come, to whom the promise was made, and it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. For if there had been a law given, which could have given life, verily, righteousness should have been by the law. But the scripture hath concluded all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith, which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster, for ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ, then ye are Abraham's seed and heirs according. Amen. Thus ends the reading of God's word. As we come to Paul's letter to the Galatians, we're coming to a historical moment in which a church is in a crisis. It's in a crisis because false teachers have crept in, have crept in, and are spreading their false doctrine. They have come from Jerusalem as those sent by Peter, James, and John come teaching that the mosaical law was necessary for their justification as much as faith in Christ was. These were Pharisees that had accepted that Jesus Christ was in fact the promised Messiah, but they kept on to the ceremonial law. And they taught that the works of the law were necessary for justification. And they made a pretense that they were sent by the great apostles, Peter and James and John. But they said that Paul, this Paul that's teaching otherwise, is a false apostle. And so as Paul comes in, I trust you're familiar with this book, Paul comes in with a sense of urgency. He wastes no time immediately getting to the subject at hand. First of all, he defends his apostleship. He says, no, in fact, I am one that is called by God. God has appeared unto me. And you, you who have received this gospel, you should not receive any other gospel though it be preached by an angel from heaven. And, and, And Paul spends and labors in order to refute the false teaching that is spreading throughout this church, this false teaching, that justification, that righteousness can be obtained through the law. This is a gross misuse and abuse of God's law. And as we come to chapter 3, Paul is proving that at length through the Old Testament scriptures themselves. You see, these Pharisees, these professing Christians who are actually Pharisees and Judaizers... They claimed that they were adhering to the truth of the Old Testament. But as we come to chapter 3, we, Paul, we see that Paul is using the witness of the Old Testament itself to refute their false teaching. He first of all cites the example of Abraham. Abraham, who they boasted was their father. He says, Abraham was justified by faith as it is written. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Abraham sets the pattern. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for his righteousness came not through the works of the law, but through faith. And he he reasons that, therefore, if you are truly a child of Abraham, you are one who, like Abraham, has faith and has righteousness through faith and not through the works of the law. But then... He also cites the promises that were made unto Abraham and to his seed. He says that uh, he's key, uh, in, in verse 8, the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham saying, "In thee shall all nations be blessed." So then they which be of faith be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. Abraham was blessed by faith. And likewise, all those who have faith have the same blessing of Abraham. But the law itself teaches that all who are of the works of the law, all who would would have their standing before God determined by the works of the law, all such ones are under a curse according to the law itself. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in in the book of the law, to do them. You see, those who boasted themselves in the works of the law, who claimed that they had a righteousness to the law, in fact, these were deceived. Because the law says, unless you perfectly keep each and every precept and commandment and ordinance from the heart, not merely externally, unless you perfectly keep the law, you are under a curse. So that, that therefore there really can be no righteousness of the law. The whole doctrine and the whole agenda of these Judaizers was in fact in vain. The law itself testifies that if you claim righteousness through the law, because that's impossible, in fact, you are under a curse. So then those who are blessed with faithful Abraham, the apostle goes on to explain, those who are blessed with faithful Abraham have that blessing through Christ. Because Christ was made a curse for us. He says, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, every, uh, cursed is everyone that hangeth on the tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Christ Jesus. You see, Abraham was blessed, and those that are of faith, who, those who, who, who standing for God is determined by their faith in Christ, they are blessed with Abraham and they are absolved. They're made free from the curse of the law because Christ as a substitute took on that curse in his own person on that cross that when he was hung upon that tree that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles through Jesus Christ. That promise that was made of all that in him, in, in, in Abraham's seed would all the Gentiles be blessed that blessing comes through Christ Jesus through faith and you see when God the, the same God that made that promise that gracious promise unto Abraham that that his righteousness was through faith likewise all the righteousness of those who would believe in like manner with him the same God who made that promise who made that gracious covenant unto Abraham is the same God that also gave the law at Mount Sinai. You see, some might think and might argue, well, okay, that was for Abraham, but as we come unto Moses, we read it earlier in Exodus chapter 19, the giving of the law, as we come unto Moses, God was establishing a different way. He was giving the law, he was giving the 10 commandments and saying if you're going to be righteous, if you're going to stand in my sight as one of my children, you've got to do this and live. But this is, in fact, a misinterpretation of the giving of the law, as the apostle shows. You see, first of all, God does not contradict himself. God had made an everlasting covenant with Abraham with his seed, which is through faith and not through the works of the law. So the law that was added 430 years after cannot disannul; it cannot make void what God has already established. God has already shown that salvation comes through faith. Righteousness is not through the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So God's purpose in giving the law cannot be contrary to his promise that he originally gave unto Abraham. That's the apostle's argument here in Galatians chapter 3. Because if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more of promise. And then if it's, if, it's, if it's through works, then Abraham has something to boast about. Anyone who has a works righteousness has something to boast about before God. And say, God owes me. God owes me a blessing because I have been righteous. I've kept the law of myself. But this is in fact not the case. It is of promise. then the apostle, having explained this, explained that the example of Abraham proves that justification, that righteousness for God comes by faith and not through works of the law, and then explaining and refuting false interpretations of the law, even bringing forth the testimony of the law itself, that there can be, re- in reality, no righteousness through the law, that everyone who is under the law is under a curse, the apostle anticipates an objection in verse 19. Well, if the law, if we can't have righteousness through the law, if we don't obtain blessing through the law, then what's the purpose? Wherefore, serveth then the law. Why, of what use is the law? Well, the, the apostle goes on to explain, it was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. You see, the law was given at Mount Sinai in order... To make evidently clear just how sinful of creatures we are, and also to put in check and, and to restrain us in our sin. But primarily it was given in order to make sin all the more sinful if you were, if, if you would. Romans chapter 5 explains this well. The law that through the giving of the law. Transgression abounded, sin abounded, but but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. And, and so God's intention in giving the law to his people was not to say, okay, here is how you can be blessed in my sight. Here is how you can... Enter into covenant with me and have me to be your God. If you go back and you read Exodus 19, and again in Exodus chapter 20, as we'll read this afternoon, you'll see that God had already redeemed his people. He had already offered his, his gracious covenant unto them. The purpose of the giving of the law was to convict the people of their sin, and in fact, to show them just how destitute of any righteousness they were through the law. And that really brings us to our text in verse 24. For verse 22, it says, The scripture hath concluded all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith and so as we consider this verse verse 24 this morning we'll consider the following theme that the law teaches us of our desperate need of Christ the law teaches us of our desperate need of Christ as we consider this lo- this theme of the law as schoolmaster, we'll consider that under three headings. First of all, we'll consider the schoolmaster itself, the law as schoolmaster. Second, we'll consider its students, the students of the law. And lastly, we'll consider the subject of which it teaches. The schoolmaster, the student, and the subject. So first of all, the schoolmaster. It says, the law was our school. Master or tutor, our teacher. The church under age—that is, the church in the Old Testament—is described as a child, a church in its infancy, a church immature, a church under age, and being under tutors and governors. And so God, in dealing with that church, a church under age, a church not yet in full maturity, dealt with. The church at that time, in a childish way, what I mean by that is in a way that's appropriate for children. Those of you who have children, who have raised children, you know how you have to deal with little ones, with toddlers. They need your constant attention. You constantly have to hold their hand and and tell them what to do and what not to do. Such it was for the church underage in the Old Testament. They had the law clearly revealed unto them. That is the moral law of God, which is God's will for mankind. Summarized in the Ten Commandments. The duties that we have toward God and our neighbor. These things which bind us to perpetual and perfect personal obedience that we are to love God with all our heart and love our neighbor as ourselves. This is a moral standard that each and every one of us is whole, is to. The law was our schoolmaster. You see, when you really meditate upon what God's law requires of us, what you find, if you really understand the law, if you understand that the law is spiritual, and it's not merely external, that the law requires us to be in conformity unto it, not only in our outward actions, but even in our very hearts, our will, and our affections, and our thoughts. When you understand this, you'll begin to see that when the, when the Bible says that thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, that is in fact the most difficult, the most impossible commandment to keep. To love the Lord your God with all your heart. You see, the Pharisees, they could boast and say, well, we don't, we haven't physically committed adultery. I haven't slept with my neighbor's wife. I'm clear of this commandment. I haven't violated it at all. But in order to have any righteousness through the law, they had to mutilate and abuse the law and externalize it and pretend as though that seventh commandment that says thou shalt not commit adultery only deals with externals when in fact... It deals with the heart. The tenth commandment itself says, "Thou shalt not covet after thy neighbor's wife." And so, even in the heart, if you violate these commandments, you stand in violation of God's moral law. And when you think especially upon the first and greatest commandment, to "Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength," friend, which of us has ever has ever kept that commandment even for a moment? Even as we engage ourselves in public worship this morning, aren't our hearts oftentimes so cold, our minds so distracted? Don't we often go through the form of worship and yet lack any real nearness to God in the heart? When God says, you must love me with all of your heart and all of your strength and with all of your mind, This ought to teach us just how destitute we are of any righteousness whatsoever because it's something that we really cannot do in the flesh. And even as those regenerated, we yet have so much sin mingled in even with our good works. We still have such corruption yet indwelling in our natures that so when the law brings its commandments and its precepts and its threatenings, what it ought to do is drive us really to despair if we understand just what it requires of us and what it threatens against us if we do not conform to it. But really God's intention it is not not to drive us to despair, but as we'll see, to drive us to Christ to drive us to Christ. But the law was given, the law was given to reveal unto us the depths of our sins. As Romans 5.20 says, moreover the law entered that the offense might abound. The law entered that the offense might might abound. As it has in our text, the law was, was added because of transgressions. You see, man had at the beginning the law clearly revealed unto him. Adam had the law of God revealed and and written upon his heart. But as sin entered in, his mind was obscured. His mind was darkened and his understanding was obscured. And that law that was written on his heart, although still there, yet was obscured. And so when God entered into that covenant with his people and clearly revealed the Ten Commandments in clarity on those tablets of stone, the purpose was to bring... Clarity, and in bringing clarity, it brought conviction of sin. The substance of the law is the will of God for mankind. It came, it came at Mount Sinai. However, in the form, in fact, yes, in the form of that prescription: do this and live. You see, when God revealed the law unto his people Israel of old and said, do this and live, what it ought to have, his intention behind that was to show them that if you do it, that's strife. I I challenge you, actually, I don't don't do this, in fact, but if you were to try and say, I'm going to perfectly love God with all my heart, I'm going to perfectly love my neighbor as myself and keep all of God's commandments from my very heart, I won't sin even once. You will drive yourself to insanity and you realize that it's something that cannot be done and you realize that what the law has for you is cursed is everyone that continueth not in all the words of this law if you were to strive with all of your strength and might to keep the law, you would find yourself utterly incapable, you would find yourself devoid of any righteousness, and you would see what a desperate condition you are in. And so the law, as it shows us our inability, as it shows us the corruption of our nature, it acts as a schoolmaster to us, as a tutor, as one, to put it bluntly, who is a babysitter to us. If for one moment you begin to think, oh, I'm, I'm righteous, I'm growing so much, I, I, I've grown. I have a righteousness of my, of my own. The law comes into your ear and says, no, not so. You can have no righteousness of your own. And so the law acts as a schoolmaster. Consider then who the student of the schoolmaster is. He says the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. As I've said already, it was the, the church under age, the Old Testament church, which was Israel at that time. They are the students of the law under its tutelage, under its care consider, first of all, their nature, their human nature. They were men, made in the image of God, with a rational nature. I mean by that they had a mind that was reasonable, made in the image of God, and to be dealt with accordingly. As such, God revealed his law in a reasonable fashion. He wrote it down so they might read it. And understand it. And it might be promulgated generation unto generation. But recall, I trust you know, recall that they were not just made in the image of God, but they were fallen in Adam. In Adam, all died. And so when Adam committed that first transgression, the guilt of that transgression was imputed unto all his ordinary descendants but also the corruption of his nature. The corruption of his mind, of his heart, of his will, and even of his body was inherited by all of those who descended from Adam. And so even if they were to have a clear revelation of God's law, as they did in the Ten Commandments, they had such a nature, they had such a corruption in themselves that they were utterly incapable of keeping that law natures were corrupt. These also were the children of Israel. They had just come out of bondage, 400 years of bondage in Egypt. These were those who had heard the stories of their fathers, of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, how God appeared unto them and and made gracious promises and covenants with them. But they themselves had experienced hardship, cruelty, slavery, and bondage in Egypt. Until at last they cried out unto God for salvation, for deliverance. And he heard them and delivered them. And God came down and delivered them by the hand of Moses. And now finally being delivered out of the hand of the Egyptians. The Lord gathers them as his people and is establishing them as a nation and offers his, co- his gracious covenant unto them. But in order to do so, he, first of all, <clears throat> reminds them that he is the Lord their God that brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the, bond- the house of bondage and slavery, that he has done these things for them. And so first of all, he, he, he publishes the moral law to show them their sins. And then he establishes the ceremonial law to set forth Christ to them, to show them that they're perpetually going to be in sin. And so, of course, he, he sets up the sacrif- the sacrificial system in which offerings are, are and sacrifices are offered morning and evening, perpetually, showing that although they sin perpetually, uh, forgiveness is perpetually offered to them in Christ, and yet not in and of those Sacrifices of the, the blood of, of bulls and goats in and of themselves, but of Christ that was to come. And of course, all these things were did truly and really set forth Christ in substance, and yet they were difficult under, to understand. In comparison to the clarity and the light of the New Testament. These who were kept under the law were those who were Abraham's children those who are inheritors of the promise, and those who had to be taught that righteousness could not be obtained through the law. And so the students of the law was the Old Testament church, the Jews of old, children of Adam, children of Abraham, members of the Old Covenant church. They were under a schoolmaster, so that they might bring up, that they might be brought to Christ. And here is the subject of the lesson, that we might be justified by faith. We, we who are members of the church, children of Abraham by faith, children of Adam by nature. We who are taught by the schoolmaster of the law, are taught this lesson. We are brought to Christ, held by the hand, as it were, by the law, as it shows us our inability, it shows us the the, the depths of our depravity. It brings us to Christ. It, It says, you see, you have no righteousness to be had of me, and so go to Christ. It brings us to the foot of the cross that we might be justified by faith. To be justified in the Scriptures is to be counted, to be regarded as righteous. How can you have righteousness? The law says it's not through me, but it's through Christ. And so we're brought to Christ, and we're to learn this lesson that we're to be justified only through faith in Christ Jesus. And what a glorious lesson that is. You see, if you are someone who's ever really been made sensible, been made aware of the depths of your sin... After laboring under a convicted conscience, realizing that you're enslaved to so many different kinds of sins, that in so many ways you stand in violation of God's law, that really you don't love God with all your heart, you don't love your neighbor as yourself. And you try to reform. You try to change yourself. You work so hard to change. You make New Year's resolutions. You, 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 you determine within yourself you're going to read your Bible more. You're going to pray more. You're going to commit to family worship. And yet you find in yourself, like the apostle in, in Romans chapter 7, when you would do good, evil is present with me. If you are someone who has labored under the law of God to come and to, to be brought by the law and, sh- and be shown that you can have righteousness not through yourself but with Christ, what a relief that is. The psalmist in Psalm 38 says that his sins, that his sins are too heavy of a burden for him to bear. Have you ever felt that, friend? Really felt that? Yes, we all say, Yes, I'm a sinner, you're a sinner, but when you really the word of God pierces your heart and your soul, and you realize just how weighty your sin is and that you cannot bear it. To know that there is one who would come and be your burden bearer. What good news that is. Then you will know what it means to say, blessed are those who preach the good tidings of this gospel. To be brought to Christ, being convicted of sin, feeling the, its burden, its unbearable burden. And to be brought to Christ, one who offers salvation, who offers his righteousness to you, brings joy in earnest. To those, to those that have felt this conviction of sin, to those that have labored under a convicted conscience and felt the conviction of God's law, to those that are made weary in their labors for righteousness and realize just how vain all such labors are to those that have felt the weight of this unbearable burden. Christ says, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. Gives you a righteousness that doesn't come from yourself but comes from Him. He clothes you in His righteousness as you see that you stand in and of yourself, naked and destitute. In Ezekiel chapter 16, we see a beautiful picture of the imputation of Christ's righteousness unto His people. In that chapter, the, the Lord describes His people as an infant girl, cast out into the mud, abandoned, umbilical cord, uncut, filthy, bloody. But the Lord passes by and has compassion on her, washes her with water, beautifies her. And it says that as she matured and grew up, that he entered into a covenant and she became his, and he spread his skirt over her. The idea there is a wife coming in to her husband and becoming part of him, and she being shielded under his protection, under his canopy, as it were. And the Lord says, I put my beauty upon you, you who are ugly by nature, you who are abandoned and poor, I beautified you, I put jewels upon you. I I put my glory upon you. He says in Psalm 149, I will beautify the meek with salvation. He beautified you with salvation. This is exactly what happens when the righteousness of Christ is imputed unto us by faith. We who by nature are children of wrath. We who are estranged from God, who don't know God, who have no inheritance but wrath itself. Christ comes and makes us joint heirs, joint inheritors with himself, so that when God looks upon you, Christian, when God looks upon you, he doesn't see a wretched sinner. He doesn't see all of your spots and blemishes, but he sees the beauty and the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And this righteousness is received only by faith. In order to exercise that kind of faith, however, you have to first be convicted of sin. This is why the law was given in this way, to teach us of our need of Christ. But being convicted of sin and realizing just how desperate in the state and the state we are in by nature, we look out of ourselves. We look away from ourselves. We look unto Christ and through faith, through faith in his name we receive a righteousness that doesn't belong to us, it belongs to Christ and we're adopted as children and we have the same inheritance of Abraham, no even better we have the same inheritance of Christ himself, friend, have you thought about that for a moment? That you no matter what kind of background you've come from, no matter what earthly riches or lack thereof you have in this life that all of heaven and earth is yours in Christ. The unsearchable riches of Christ are yours. That God, if God has given you his son, he will freely give you all things. That you are made a joint heir with Christ. This is the lesson that the law teaches us. That we have a desperate. Feeling our own inability to keep the law and its condemning power through faith in Christ Jesus, we have a righteousness that could otherwise not be obtained. A righteousness that not only frees us from guilt, but even grants us access into the depths of the glory of God that only the only begotten Son of God had by nature and by merit. We have access to that righteousness by faith. Have you learned this lesson, friend? Have you learned that you can have no righteousness of your own? You say, well, I'm a Reformed Christian, of course. I I, I confess and I believe in justification by faith alone. But you see, this, this error could creep in subtly, even to the soundest of believers. In your day-to-day life, how are you living? Are you living as though your prayers can only be answered if you keep the law? Are you living as though in order to to return unto God, to return unto Christ after you've committed sin, after you've backslidden, you've got to clean yourself up for a while. You've got to show that you can keep the law. You've got to show some good works. the call to the backslidden Christian is the same as the call to all those in the world. And that is to come unto Christ and have faith in his name and receive of his righteousness. The lesson that the law teaches us is that through ourselves and in by ourselves we can do nothing And so therefore, we must look unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. And looking unto him, he will clothe us in his righteousness, adorn us in his beauty, and wash us in his blood. And though our sins, though our sins be bright red as Christ, sending us a Savior, Jesus Christ, who saves us from all of our iniquities, who purifies us and clothes us in his righteousness. We ask, O God, that indeed this lesson will be learned and that our eyes will be fixed, fixed upon Jesus Christ, our Savior, who beckons weak and weary sinners to come unto him and find rest for their souls. We thank you, Lord, for the gospel that saves us from our sins, and we ask, O God, that you write these things upon our hearts and in our souls, in Jesus' name.